Uh, yeah, so the reading is taken from Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast for, to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace uh, offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on this people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as Soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it uh, with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, 
of each of you and go to and fro the, from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbour. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing on you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go and lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. They, then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. But also in a way that's compelling for us, I pray. So yeah, I pray that you would be with us now and help us as we want to worship you by, by listening for your voice. Amen. If you keep that passage there, I know it's a long one and I reassure you that we're not going to you know, go really deep into every single part of the passage. It's too long to do that. So we'll, we'll just do a little more of a sort of summary of, of a lot of it. I've called this fighting for the future. The people have been led out of Egypt from slavery under the oppressive rule of Pharaoh. And God has freed them to be his people. And he has shown them how to live as his people in the land. And as Moses is still up the mountain, receiving instructions from the Lord, the people rebel. Because this is a fight for the future of Israel. And we see how prone we are to worship other gods. And so I want to show you three sort of movements through the story. That God's leader is rejected. That there's a very uncomfortable audit, isn't there? And then there's a disturbing lack of faith amongst the people. Firstly, God's leader is rejected. And if you turn your eyes to those first 10 verses, uh, that sort of summarizes the, the main theme going on there. We've had in Britain an unprecedented period of upheaval uh, and short governments with leaders rejected, haven't we? We've had, and I meant at some point to actually research exactly how many, but I've lost count how many prime ministers we've had in the last maybe four or five years. It's been ridiculous, hasn't it? But surely the worst of all was Liz Truss. And surely for almost forever, she will be recognised that way. 44 working days of a premiership that completely tanked the economy and has left her reputation in tatters and now launching, ironically, popular conservatism with maybe the most unpopular prime minister of all time and statistics bear that out here's a graph that shows her very brief tenure and her level of unpopularity compared to every other alternative that was there we know something of that and we know something of how that was fully deserved and by the way she's not the only failed uh, prime minister in recent history is she but that was deserved poor decisions stupid decisions Stupid decisions pursued despite all the best advice. Deserve the fate that came. But here is Moses, 40 days after leading the people out of Israel and going up the mountain of God, being booted out for no good reason. God's leader is rejected. And in verses 1 to 6, we see the people's rebellion. 
When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they're ready to move on, aren't they? They're not just ready to move on from Moses. They're ready to move on from God. You see that? Up. Make us gods. This man who has brought us out, they say, and they've forgotten already, or maybe they haven't forgotten, they just deliberately want to rewrite the history. It wasn't Moses really who had led them out. It was God. God had brought them out, and they're abandoning God. Not so much Moses. And it's really important that we see that in this story, because this explains the reaction. Why well, this is such a serious thing? That the, the people are actually abandoning the God who had shown himself God over all the gods of Egypt and had delivered them from slavery and oppression and death into life, and now they want to walk away. And so Aaron steps up and he blows everything up, doesn't he? Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods of Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Aaron steps up. And he blows everything up, doesn't he? And the people now waste the treasure that God had placed in their hands. Do you remember earlier on in the story, Exodus 3? I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. These weren't their family heirlooms. These weren't earrings that had been passed down from granny. This was gold that God had placed in their hands. And he had not placed it in their hands for them to fashion another God. And yet that's what they do. And so Aaron, effectively in some ways acting as like the vice president, the deputy prime minister, has publicly led the people to break commandments one and two of the ten they're having another God other than God. They're making an image of God. We thought in chapter 18 that Moses maybe failed in some ways, that he had not effectively delegated and brought in new leaders. And Jethro's father-in-law wisely tells him this. But maybe this was some of the background of why he hadn't. Because here's the second best. And here's what he does five minutes after he's gone. And the problem here is not that Aaron is usurping Moses, though he is. He is usurping God, and that will never end well. It hasn't so far, and it never will, and it never does. And this needs to be seen, as it is, as an act of treason and insurrection against God, who has been nothing but good to this people. What they say, these are your gods who have brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Aaron is now deliberately rewriting their history. He knows that this is not true. They must know that this is not true. But they're willing to buy into the false narrative, aren't they? And look at what Aaron does. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it 
And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow should be a feast to the Lord. Aaron now reattributes God's work to this God. And everything good that the Lord had done, all of that rescue and redemption, is now credited to this false God. And speaking to it as the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And Aaron is now reorienting Israel's worship. He's rewritten the history. He's reattributed God's work to a false god. And now he reorients their worship. In chapter 24, a couple of weeks ago, we, th- we thought about the way in which God had been very clear about the way in which he was to be approached and worshipped. And Aaron decides to go rogue. The people rebel. And look at God's response. This is 7 to 10 here. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. God has seen all of this, hasn't he? And responds to it, to Moses who, who hasn't seen this. doesn't seem... Aware, why would he be? But look at what God does. He's provocative in the way he speaks to Moses. Your people, he says, verse 7, who you brought out. God is distancing himself from the people, isn't he? He's identifying Moses with them. Your people, you brought out, have corrupted themselves. And look at his... Summary why in verse 9. I, uh, growing up, had a dog called Doug. He's a Jack Russell. He's a very lovely dog, but he's, you know, very nice, but very, very dim. Uh, And walking him really wasn't very much fun, and that often was a task that landed upon myself. Uh, He would spend the whole time, despite how small this sort of frame was, trying to pull you along as much as he could, always at the very end of his lead. So constantly you sort of felt like you were having to like kind of pull him back and your arm sort of being pulled out and stuff. And he never sort of really learned that the leads ran out eventually, that, you know, there was only so far. And so, you know, you'd choke himself and be pulled back. And the thing about this is I'm entirely selfish. So it just made me feel bad because it made me look like I was sort of mistreating him as he's sort of going around. You think, oh, this is making me look so bad. Like, I, I, I'm not purposely doing this. So that he just insists on being like this. And he never learned because, yeah, bless him, that just wasn't who he was. Doug was a stiff-necked dog. And these are a stiff-necked people. I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. They are difficult. They are stubborn. They are obstinate. They're hard-headed They refuse to give in. They keep to their own detriment, resisting me and going against me. And so God is angry, isn't he? But then look at the test towards Moses here in verse 10 as we end this section here. There's a test, isn't there? Now, therefore, let me alone, God says, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God has identified Moses with the people, isn't it? Your people, whom you brought out. So now the question is will Moses identify with the people? Because he's offered a way out here, isn't he? 
in a way that the people aren't, at least initially. And this touches upon something that's run through the book so far, that there's been challenges around Moses' identity. Though Moses was an Israelite, he had spent most of his life, or a significant portion at least, in Pharaoh's court as an Egyptian. And in fact, initially was reluctant to take on leading the Israelites. He had been rejected by the people, even though he had chosen to reject his Egyptian identity and all the blessings that would have come with that, being in Pharaoh's court. And Israel have essentially rejected Moses and his leadership again here. And so bearing in mind the struggle with identity that Moses has had at times, it's interesting to see what Moses will do now. Because Moses is given the chance to push the eject seat out of the burning aircraft to save himself from the wreckage, isn't he? Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. The people have rejected the leader that God gave them because they are rejecting the God who had saved them. Secondly, there's an uncomfortable audit here, isn't there? I wonder if you live with or previously have, whether that's a flatmate, uh, family, partner, uh, I don't know, who is very clean and you're maybe not considered as sort of clean um, as them. I don't necessarily mean personal hygiene, I mean sort of around the house and things. Um, and I wonder if you've ever made the sort of fatal mistake of offering to help a really sort of clean person with the cleaning and what you've not bargained for is that you think that you're doing a good thing, you think that you're being helpful, you think this will go down really well, this will be really well received, you're helping them out, you're saving them work. What you don't bank for is the audit that comes afterwards. And what you realise is that actually it's not enough for you to have done it, you have to have done it their way. And if you haven't managed to do it their way for whatever reason, and I'm sure that you were told the right way to do it a lot of times, but you didn't. Somehow a good thing has become not a good thing. And you have that awkward thing that they're expecting everything. They're asking you how you did it. This is an awkward audit for Moses before God. And then even more so for Aaron before Moses, isn't it? Look at Moses' objections, verse 11. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Moses corrects, do you notice there, very gently he corrects the wrong statements that actually had come about him from God, where he'd been a bit provoked, didn't he? Your people who you brought out. No, 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 your people, God, who you brought out. It wasn't me who did this, you, you did it, they, they're yours. Moses rejects the idea of verse 7, that he had done the work and that they were his people. They weren't his people and he hadn't delivered them by his own hand. But Moses also rejects the idea of verse 4. Do you see that? These are your gods of Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. No, the calf hadn't delivered the people. It was God's power and God's hand that had delivered them. And see, Moses knows his history, doesn't he? The people here are God's responsibility. And God was the one who had come good on his responsibility before them. Moses objects, but then Moses makes an appeal, doesn't he? Verses 12 and 13 here, he makes some appeals. He says, why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. 
And then remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I've promised I'll give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. There's two appeals, isn't there? Do you see them? The first appeal is to God's name. Verse 12, this is surely, God, not the way that you want to be seen by the nations. We know because God has said many times already through this that he had done what he had done so that Egypt and all the nations would know that he was God over all the earth. That he was not a God amongst gods, but he was the God. And so Moses appeals, surely you don't want to be seen as having only brought Israel out only to destroy them. That's not who you are. But he has another appeal, doesn't he? Moses appeals to God's covenant. He says, are you going to become a covenant breaker too? This people have broken your covenant, clearly, but are you now going to break a covenant? I see, now this is where it's worth a little explanation of covenants in the Bible. There are several covenants in the Bible and understanding them really helps us. Let me give you just a couple of examples, not all of them for sake of time, but think about a covenant with Adam. Do whatever you like, but don't eat of that tree. And if you do everything, as I say, then it will go well for you. That's a covenant of works, isn't it? It's conditional. You do that, and then I will do this. And Adam could have kept that covenant. Before the fall, he's not tainted by sin. He absolutely could have and should have, and was expected he would have, kept that covenant. All it was was simply, don't eat of that tree. Not a particularly difficult one, but he didn't. And he implicated all humanity. Now, this is the same covenant that Jesus, uh, Jesus keeps by having been perfectly righteous and standing as a righteous representative for us. This is the way the Apostle Paul teaches us about this. He says, Romans 5, if because of one man's trespass, meaning Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Both Adam and Jesus representatives, Adam one who failed and implicated everybody else, and Jesus one who succeeded and so saved everyone else. That's one covenant. There's also a covenant with Moses, the Ten Commandments. God says, here are my commandments. If you keep these, then you will have a long life in the land and you will do well. It's a covenant of works. It's conditional. Do these things and you'll live, you'll do well. If not, blood needs to be shed. Exodus 24, that's what we saw, wasn't it? And the people were flicked with that blood. Sacrifices, offerings were made, all that. And it was offered upon the altar and put upon the people. Now, we couldn't ever keep that covenant because we're now tainted by sin. There's no way that we'll perfectly keep that forever. It's not possible. So we need a substitute who can. That's what those offerings were about in that moment. You need someone who will step in for you. And in the Old Testament, sacrifices died in the place of the people, and that removed God's anger, although it didn't offer up righteousness. What it offers is someone who will take the punishment for you. It doesn't offer someone actually keeping the covenant. That still remains as a problem. And so, Jesus, in his new covenant, he fulfills having been perfectly righteous and offering himself up to death for us. 
That's a covenant of grace. It's unconditional. We don't need to do anything. He's done all of this for us. We have faith in him. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin, that is God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a covenant of grace. That everything that's expected of us in all those commandments be met in Jesus on our behalf for us so that we be seen as righteous under that covenant. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Now, that's a long way round of getting successfully to the covenant that Moses is appealing to. He's appealing to a covenant made with Abraham. That God would give a son, that God would multiply his family, that he would make a nation of them, that he would bless them, that he would give them a land. And that they would circumcise their firstborn, uh, or their male children as a sign of that covenant. It's a covenant of works. It's conditional. But all of the works are on God's side. Circumcising your children is only a sign. It's really anything that you're doing. All the work is from God. When you go back and you read what's being said, there's, I will give you. I will do this. I will bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will lead you into this land. I will multiply you. It's God doing the work. And if God is a covenant-keeping God, he ought to be keeping this covenant regardless of the failure that has happened with the covenant to Moses. And this is what Moses is appealing to. He's, you've made a promise here to Abraham, and that's what he's quoting. Are you now going to back out of it? That doesn't feel like you. And so God relents, verse 14, doesn't he? God remembers and he upholds his covenant promise and he's going to spare his people from disaster. He relented from the disaster. Moses has convinced God to turn away from his just anger. But I'd leave a question with you. Is the story really about God changing his mind or had God been prompting Moses to develop his understanding of who God was? That he's now actually stepping up to plead for a people that before he was pleading not to have to lead. What a change. Here he is stepping in for them. God relents, but as soon as God relents, we see Moses' anger kindled, don't we? Having convinced God to turn away from anger, in verses 15 to 20, Moses becomes angry as he sees what had happened. And Moses now feels what God had felt in verse 10 and 12, in verse 19, doesn't he? As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf they'd made and burnt it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. He is angry, isn't he? And you know, there is a righteous anger at sin, isn't there? And here he acts decisively to drive it out from amongst the people. And we see Aaron's weakness in verses 21 to 24, don't we? That he crumpled. He should have taken responsibility the people had only ever actually whinged at him. He should have stood strong. He blames the people, doesn't he? He chucks them under the bus, verse 22. They've made me do it. Not mentioning what he had done in it. He doesn't push back at all at any point. All the talk there in verse 23 is, uh, is what they said. There's nothing about what Aaron had said in response because he didn't. He didn't push back. 
And actually, he's a liar, isn't he? Verse 24, if you spot that. So, you know, I just put this in and the calf came out. We know that's not the case, don't we? No mention of the graving tool. No mention of the work to shape it to the calf, was there? No mention of the altar he built. That didn't just pop out of the fire, did it? No, he's a liar. But most of all, there's no talk of God, is there? Do you notice that in in Aaron's responses there, verse 21 to 24? No response of God. And there's the source of all his weakness. Because he doesn't seem to understand God at all, does he? God's leader, Moses, pleads for the people who had forgotten him. And pleads to God to remember his covenant promises. And then lastly there, there's a disturbing lack of faith. Moses isn't stupid, is he? Look at his immediate response. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose. He had not restrained them. He had not controlled them. And they had broken loose. There's chaos there. As he said, they they hear the sound of war. And as it turns out, it's not. It's them in revelry. If you scan your eyes just a little bit previously, the way in which actually this new worship of this new God had subverted uh, good values, didn't it? The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. There's no hard work, there's no good rest, there's no worship of God. It's instead, we'll sit down to eat, and we'll rise up just to play. And there's a rabble creating a chaotic noise, sound of singing and dancing. I suppose we could put it in modern pilots. They're steaming, aren't they? I had the misfortune of being in Glasgow for a work conference uh, at the same time of uh, one of the recent Scotland matches, and I've been very naive in planning it at that time. And so I'm walking through Glasgow at 3 p.m. thinking, well, there's so many people out here in pubs on a sort of Tuesday afternoon. Or is it, they're getting ready for the, the games at 8. Yeah, of course they are. <laughs> of course they are. This is the kind of scene. It's a mess. Aaron had let them break loose. They've abandoned everything that had been set out in chapter 24. It's causing chaos and ruin and destruction amongst them. And so then Moses gives a challenge, doesn't he? Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered round him. The end of that verse makes that sound like that's a really big sort of affirmation. All the sons of Levi What it means is everybody who wasn't part of that tribe didn't. It's not good, is it? It's not good. There's been a mass rebellion. They're done with God, who has given them everything. And why? Because they had to wait 40 days. Remember as well the blood oath that they made less than two months ago. Chapter 24, verse 7. All the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's not worked out that way, is it? He said to them, verse 27, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbour. I wonder if that's a little confusing. I wonder if it's uncomfortable. Shocking. Brutal. Ruthless. Maybe inhumane, unjust, even immoral. It's 
potentially a serious problem, isn't it? How, how on earth can a God who commands this be good? And so it's important to see the tone of this. Go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. Each of you kill his brother, his companion, his neighbour. Now, that makes it sound, I think, probably, certainly on first reading for me too, it would make it sound like this, that everybody dies other than the Levites. That there's a chaos of the sort of revelry that's going on, but now it's almost met with an equal chaos of them being slayed by the sword. But it's the opposite. One commentator puts it like this, that it meant carefully and systematically approaching everyone and finding out whether or not they intended to return to Yahweh, abandoning their idolatry. Moses had given them initially, hadn't he, a chance to back down, verse 26. Who's on the Lord's side? They've then had a further chance because they've gone out through the whole camp systematically where each of the tribes would have been according to tribe and they've gone through and they've asked them, where do you stand? What are you going to do? And still a number of them refuse. It's important to see the tone right, but it's also important to see the proportion. It says verse 28, that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. We know from earlier on that the population was at least 600,000 men Once you include women and children, a reasonable estimate would be upwards of 2 million people. Now, that means between the upper and lower estimate of the population, between 0.15% and 0.5% are being killed here. So it's not fair or accurate to characterise this as genocide. This is a civil war. The death's brutal. Outless. A minority, an insurgence, a rebellion is squashed. A rebellion that would have led all the people to destruction is squashed very quickly. And the point of verse 28 to kill your brother, your companion, your neighbour, is that actually your relationships don't outweigh your obedience to God here. If people are dug in on their rebellion, this is the end to meet. What is better? To allow this minority to force ruin on the whole people and implode the nation? It's important to see the motive. These people have launched a treasonous revolt that has and will lead to chaos and destruction. And yet, they will be spared. Look at Moses' response. You've sinned a great sin, he says to the people. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. There's some at least who have, well, actually most who have come back and have reconsidered their rebellion, haven't they? 3,000 who've dug in, but many, many more who've turned away from that rebellion, not wanting to abandon God for the calf, but there's a reconciliation that's needed, isn't there? Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps I can cover your sin. And so Moses tries to make a deal, doesn't he? This people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you'll forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. Forgive their sin or blot me out. He offers up his life for theirs. But the people are to take personal responsibility, aren't they? Verse 33. Whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go. 
Lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel should go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I'll visit their sin upon them. The people are spared and they're to move on, but there'll be a judgment for these actions. And so rather than being destroyed, they face a plague as a solemn warning that they might fear God. The rebellion needs squashing and God's rule needs re-establishing for the good of the nation. God had led his people out from slavery and death under Pharaoh into freedom and life. And he's given them the ways that they'll be distinct amongst the people of the nations. And they've said all that the Lord has spoken will do and will be obedient. And within 40 days, they've not only broken this, they want to abandon Moses and God entirely. And so there is a fight for the future of Israel and what they'll be about and who they will follow. But what would God do in response? Here things are pulled back from the brink through Moses. But God ultimately faces and redeems all these things himself in his son Jesus. Moses comes out with a nice sentiment, doesn't he? Don't harm them. Punish me. But it wasn't his place to make that offer. And God already had something planned, didn't he? Because Jesus himself was rejected. Jesus came from God to his people and was rejected. John chapter 1, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus was rejected by the people, but accepted by God and saves those who follow him. Jesus passes God's test. We all break the covenant, God's law. And so our lives are on the line. But Jesus came and lived a perfect life, free from sin, only ever doing what was right. Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest, it's speaking of Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus keeps the law perfectly on our behalf so that we will be judged not by our sin. And thirdly, Jesus had no lack of faith in his father. Jesus came and he suffered and was rejected and was put to death on the cross, but he trusted his father since his prayers towards his uh, final moments in the garden before going towards his death. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And because of Jesus' faithfulness on our behalf, in our place, we're judged faithful. And so we are saved from judgment. And we can trust Jesus as we follow him because he's faithful and trustworthy. We are so prone, like Israel, to turn aside to other gods. But we have a saviour in Jesus who is so faithful. We are set free. We are made clean. We are considered righteous before God. And we have no need to fear. And yet, we have need 
to trust him, don't we? To trust him. To really believe that he is really all we need. And to rely on him, not our own abilities. I'm going to pray and then we'll uh, close by singing again together. As I pray, the, uh, Kevin Rachel will get into position. Thanks, guys. Father God, thank you for your grace and your love towards us. We find, like these people, as we examine our own lives, we too, in different moments and different times, to different things, turn away from you as the thing that we look for, for all good, for all hope, for all security and meaning and purpose, to other things, all sorts of different things. Father, we thank you that in your grace and your loving provision of the Lord Jesus for us, we've no need to fear your judgment and being blotted out from your book, but that instead we can have faith and confidence that through Jesus' righteous life lived in our place, our future and security and inheritance is, is uh, safe in you. And so this morning, I pray that you would help us not to go out in fear and anxiety as to have to be better, to be more, to do more, and all of that, but to trust you more and to rest in all you've done and rely upon you and find peace and hope and joy in being saved by faith alone, by your grace alone, in Christ alone, for your glory alone. So, Lord, Holy Spirit, pray that you would work that within our hearts, Lord. We pray, not just today, but going forward through the rest of this week. And that out of that place of security and hope and joy and peace, we might be able to give hope to others who don't know you yet and who are desperately looking for those things and don't really know where to turn to find them. So, Lord, we pray you might help us uh, to lead others to you in that way. We ask this for our good and for your glory. Amen.